Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Australian best-selling author Karen Brooks's latest book, The Chocolate Maker's Wife, is a historical thriller set in the time of Charles II, when chocolate was regarded as sin in a bowl, and the commercial houses that served it were hotbeds of revolution. Damnation never tasted so sweet. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Karen talks about the lush, fascinating world of Restoration London and of her heroine, a beautiful woman drawn into a world of riches, power, intrigue, and of course, chocolate. For our lucky listeners, we've got a paperback copy of this breathtaking story to give away. Details of how to enter the draw can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com, in the show notes for this episode, or else on Facebook. Entries close June 30, so don't delay, get in today. But now, here's Karen. Hello there, Karen, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, hi, Jenny, and thank you so much for having me. Look, it's great, and I just wanted to start by saying very reverently, Dr. Brooks, (laughs) because indeed you are a PhD in humanities and you're well recognised in your home country of Australia as a weekly columnist and an expert on all sorts of controversial popular topics. So um, we'll get a lot onto that a little bit later, but you've also a wife and mother, so you've got a very, very busy life apart from your writing. But in the field of your writing, you've published 12 books, beginning with YA and fantasy and moving into the historical fiction. So the $64 million question is, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you thought, I've really got to write fiction or I will have just not done what I meant to be on earth to do somehow? (laughs) <laughs> I wish I had a story like that to tell. I love it when authors say that they, they've always wanted to be a writer and they wrote since, you know, they were out of the cot. But no, I, I never saw myself ever as a writer. I always wrote. I mean, I think lots of kids do. And as a teenager, I kept diaries and I wrote terrible, you know, lovelorn poems and, you know, things of adulation to people I admired, you know, political figures or actors and things like that. But um. No, I think it was my girlfriend um, becoming quite successful in her field as an author. That was um, Sarah Douglas, the fantasy writer. Um, She was really, it was a really aspirational moment for me and she really encouraged me. And um, I'd written a couple of plays and one had been performed in Sydney and years earlier. And so, again, dabbling, dabbling, dabbling. But it was, I kept saying, oh, I really should write a book one day. Oh, I think I'll write a book and... Basically, I think Sarah got absolutely sick of me going on about it and said, oh, for God's sakes, just stop saying you're going to do it and just do it. She had a few expletives thrown in there, I'm being polite. And she was a damn good friend. She really was. So I thought, yeah, you're right. And I just sat down one day and basically did it. Yes. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It was tortuous. So No, actually, it wasn't tortuous at all. It was a real pleasure. But I was in my late 30s uh, from memory, um, yeah, when I wrote my first book. 
Uh-huh. Right. Now, the most recent one just out is The Chocolate Maker's Wife, and it's a historical thriller set in the Restoration period. It's got the backdrop of Charles II on the throne, the Great Plague, and the Great Fire of London. It's your third historical, and I just wondered what attracted you to that genre after having spent quite a lot of time in the fantasy area? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think like a lot of fantasy writers, I drew on history anyway to construct my fantasies. So they were more or less historical fantasy. I had real figures in them. I had actual moments in history. But, of course, I, I played with that and I speculated about what if. So, for example, um, my last three, my last fantasy trilogy was set in a, a, an equivalent to Renaissance Venice and Elizabethan England. Um, that was barely recognisable as Elizabethan England, but the Venice was very recognisable. And it was really my agent, um, Sir Anthony, saying to me, oh, Karen, I think that your real strength is history. And she said, um, you love it so much and you, I mean, she was too polite to say you bang on about it, but I did. <laughs> and um, she said, why don't you just focus on the history? So I took her advice and I'm really, really glad I did because I think I found my, I'm really comfortable doing that. I really love it. Yes. So it was an easy shift is what I'm trying to say, you know, um, to do. I just dropped the fantasy element. I still love fantasy and I still read it a lot and appreciate it very much. It's probably just very serendipitous that historical fiction is seems to be enjoying a real resurgence at the moment as well. So it is quite a hot niche to be in. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, it, again, it's a genre I always loved and really appreciated too. And I think that when you find a writer that really respects history as well and then creates this wonderful story set within it, you can learn so much from it too. And, you know, the greatest predictor of the present and indeed the future is the past. So we learn about ourselves as well and I guess about our own humanity by reading history as well. And, and I don't know, it just helps you make sense of events around you. I find that anyway. I love it. Yeah. Sure. Yep. As we might expect from the title, the book contains a fascinating amount of information about chocolate. This is the time when chocolate had just become very fashionable in London and was also regarded as rather controversial and indeed even sinful. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's rap at that time? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it, yeah, what it was a drink for a start, so people didn't eat it. It wasn't confectionery. And um, it came to England via Spain and France, who, of course, colonised, um, you know, the, the Americas, the South American countries and all that, and then started developing um, plantations in the Africas. So it was also tied up with this awful um, slavery and, 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 you know, the exploitation of various cultures and crushing of them indeed. But anyway, it came to England, um, as I said, by the continent. And when it first came there, it was seen as a decadent, really naughty drink. And it was called Sin in a Bowl because they didn't drink out of cups. They drank in bowls. And they put various additives in it, everything that we're accustomed to, like milk and sugar, to eggs, to um, almond meal, which, again, is not too, too strange, bread, chilli, um, flowers, uh, uh, ambergris, which is, I think, a... Uh, a whale, uh, a product of whales. Um, anyway, it's all sorts of really strange things and it was said to be quite the aphrodisiac. So men in particular like to bring it home for their women to drink and they used to bring it home in the form of a chocolate cake. And by that I mean um, a very solid mass of uh, the cocoa butter, really, the, the, the beans all crushed and, and the, the, the hull, the shell taken out, winnowed out. 
and they're made into a thick paste which they break up into little bits and mix with boiling water. So that was how it was um, consumed and they set up houses for people which were like taverns or a more sophisticated version of a tavern and people for four pennies could go in and drink chocolate. So it broke down social barriers too because providing you had the money, anyone of any class could go in and drink and converse with the other men. It was only men allowed into these places. Later women did serve um, and, and, and eventually women were admitted. But, yeah, in the beginning, no, very much a man's environment and they used to discuss politics, they'd gamble, they'd conduct auctions discuss the latest scientific discoveries. It was, it was, they were really fascinating places where uh, plots and plans were fermented. So, yeah. Sounds fascinating. And in fact, the, the cafe or chocolate house that your heroine runs sounds like a wonderful community and establishment. You almost have the feeling you want to be able to visit it yourself. It's such an exciting sounding place. Oh, that's um, nice to hear that because that was what I think I was trying to evoke because I think they would have been. I think they would have been quite thrilling places and because chocolate also coincided with the birth of journalism as we know it, um, meaning that they were paid what they'll call correspondents who would go out and seek news and report it back to um, their uh, the equivalent of an editor who would print it then in news sheets and they were very tightly controlled at that time. There were only 20 legal printing presses allowed in London, for example, and the king and the government very much controlled what went on. So, of course, that meant there were underground presses as well where, again, things were published that the powers that be didn't want out there and didn't want people discussing. So literacy was on the rise as well and people were really becoming aware of their rights. And um, there were also equivalent to chocolate houses were coffee houses. So... Coffee, again, was another drink that where in the past people always drank beer and ale and uh, cider and sack and wine and mead, and now they are drinking two popular drinks, uh, coffee particularly, but also chocolate, that kept them sober. So they were um, remembering what they were discussing and really having these deep, meaningful conversations and instigating change, which, of course, change is always a danger to the government in power. Yeah, yeah. You've got a huge list of characters, true and fictional, listed at the back of The Chocolate Maker's Wife, including Samuel Pepys, the very famous diarist who's there right through the whole book. It's clear you've done a huge amount of research. I just wondered, how do you sort of tackle setting up one of these books? Yeah, another great question. Um, very methodically, um, what I do, um, and again, I didn't really know much about the period before I began. I knew about King Charles II. I knew about the plague and the Great Fire. And when I say I knew, I had that, you know, vague general knowledge that a lot of us that like history possess. So basically I look at the broad overall period. Um, I look at, then I, I start to drill down. So I start with the big overarching books that are maybe a biography of the king. They're always great to start with. So I read a couple of different biographies, and then I start to drill down into the social changes that were happening. I read the plays of the time. I look at the artwork. Um, I read literature of the time too, if I can. And then I read a lot of studies and surveys. So everything from, um, yeah, scientific discoveries of the time to the way um, gender uh, was represented. And then I read lots of wonderful fiction, historical fiction set in the period too. And what was a bonus about this period is there's been many great books written about the plague and the Great Fire and the consequences of these, what led up to them and the changes that they forced upon society at the time and how um, English people and indeed people in the continent coped with them. And, and they were quite, they were fascinating, absolutely fascinating. 
And then, of course, on top of that, I have books about chocolate and coffee to also help my research. So, yeah, that was a fair bit of research. So do you research solidly before you start writing or plotting anything or do you do it parallel with the, the, the plotting or the thinking about the structure and characters? Yeah, well, before I start research, I always have the beginning of the book and I pretty much know how it's going to end. What happens between is anyone's guess. So I have okay. that vague idea um, and probably the main characters and that's all. So then I start my research and I probably research really solidly for anywhere up to a year, just reading and note-taking, poring over maps. I've been fortunate enough to go to England um, a few times and walk the streets and take photographs and things like that. So being in situ is really a privilege and really wonderful. And then um, I start the writing. And, of course, as you write, you continue to research because I'm a stickler for the fabrics that we used, um, the condition of the roads, you know, um, the proper names and things where I can get them. And, of course, what really helped me with this particular book were the diaries of Samuel Pepys, which, um, yes. oh, they were just amazing. And what an interesting little fellow he was. I don't mean to sound condescending because he was quite a marvellous smart man, a naughty man, um, a bit scandalous, uh, but he he was indicative of the rising middle class at the time and how education could really change a person's fortunes. And he kept um, diaries for 10 years um, pretty solidly. So from them, I was able to gain everything from, well, learn about his bowel movements, if you even write about that, <laughs> his um, sexual fantasies. <laughs> he coded them in French, actually. He coded his diaries and... Um, Fortunately, we have good people that have translated all this for us. And uh, But you'd also get the weather and what plays were being performed at the two major theatres and just the people he'd encounter and what he really thought of them. So all those things are gems for a writer. And after I felt like I got to know him, like I I'd sort of he was a friend who um, I didn't always like the way they behaved, but he confided in me, he trusted me. This is how I felt. So I had to include him in the book. <laughs> You don't just stick to one period either. I mean, the, the the one before this, The Locksmith's Daughter, is a Tudor spy story and your first book was set in medieval England and was set around a brewing company, a family that were brewers. So you're a bit of a big a, a beggar for punishment in terms of, of setting yourself up with these um, projects, aren't you? Well, you're very kind, Jenny. Other people would call me a fool, including myself. <laughs> I just think, why do I do this to myself? And... I know, I, and it's, you get the story, and once the story takes hold of you, you can't let it go, and it's like a package deal. It comes with the period. And um, so, yeah, I have to go and learn a whole period, but that's the beauty. I'm I'm learning so much as I go, and that, that's been fabulous. But I made a promise to myself because my next book's actually set in Scotland in the 1700s, and Gosh. it's actually based on a true story, and it's a terrible true story. And I discovered it, well, I knew a little bit about it, and I went, to Scotland with the intention to research a slightly different story and found this one. And once it got its hooks in me, and hooks is probably really appropriate because it's to do with fishwives and witchcraft, I couldn't let it go. And um, the story of these women and what happened to them needed to be told. So, yeah, so I had to learn not just a whole new period but a, a whole new culture because Scottish culture was is and was really, really different. And, um, and now I'm back in medieval times. <laughs> I'm researching back in medieval times. So I thought, oh, great, you know, I've already done that. I, I should be really comfortable. But I think because I've leapt, leapt ahead so often over the years, I feel a bit like Doctor Who, um, I, I've forgotten a lot. And also I'm setting it slightly earlier than my previous one. So, 
new kings, um, different governments, different things going on. So yet again, I'm, I'm on this huge and wonderful learning curve. Now, the brewer's tale had a, a extra significance for you, I think, because it things were happening in your personal life at that time that made it very difficult. You've mentioned this dear friend of yours, Sarah. I believe that she has passed on and that it happened in that period. And also, I think you suffered a little bit of ill health yourself. Are you are you feeling like talking about any of that? Oh, yeah, look, I'm... I'm Thank you, Jenny. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine talking about it. Yes, Sarah, um, the reason we actually shifted to Tasmania, my husband, Stephen, and I, we came here for one year and that was with the intention to care for Sarah who had stage four ovarian cancer. And uh, Sarah and I have been friends for a couple of decades and very close friends. And basically, long story short here, she had no one really to care for her. And I also had been diagnosed with cancer, but I was going to be all right but I was on extended sick leave and when I could travel, I came down to see her and I was so distressed at how isolated and alone she was and when I came back home, um, I was living up near Byron Bay at the time, I was incredibly distressed and um, the house we'd been about to offer on in Brisbane had actually gone under in the floods and it was like the universe was telling us it's not time to go in that direction and my beautiful husband said, look, I have this idea. Why don't we put our stuff in storage and go to Tasmania for a year and look after Sarah? Because he loved her too. And we did. And um, nine months after we arrived, or nine and a half months, Sarah died. And, you know, it's funny, Jenny, because intellectually you know it's going to happen. But you somehow think because you're there you're going to make things different and change it. And we were, we were devastated when she died. And I think we existed in a bit of a fug for quite a few months after, but we had made the decision before she died that we'd stay and because we fell in love with this place. It's a beautiful place, beautiful people. And, yeah, so we're still here eight years later and um, that was when um, I, I was finishing the last of my fantasy trilogy and really struggled that night. I, I still have um, ill health because of the cancer. Um, that's the thing. When you have cancer, um, it, it's, a, it's such an invidious, horrible illness and... Uh, People don't realise that just because it's cut out of you, it doesn't mean it's over. And, um, yeah. yeah, sometimes sometimes things continue. So I'm about to head up to Sydney for another operation um, to do with it, uh, actually the week after next. But I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm still here and I'm still able to do what I love. And, um, you know, I count my blessings very much. But anyway, yeah, so we're still here and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. And I feel like Sarah's with me, actually. I'm looking at her photo right now as I'm talking to you and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a remarkable story. And Brewer's Tale also had another effect. It sounds like it really was a meant-to-be thing because while you were researching it, I believe that your husband decided that he might open a beer brewing business, a craft beer business. And are you, you're still doing that, I believe, are you? Yes, yes, we are. And that's right. And I always think that um, I, while, while I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to write about? And actually, sorry, I should have extended the story. Sarah had only died a couple of weeks before my sister came to stay with me because she knew how sad and bereft we were and um, she's a sweetie and I was taking her out to see the sights of Hobart and there was a lovely bar here called La Bar on the Waterfront and um, I was sort of daydreaming a bit not really focused but the young woman was talking my um, sister through of all things the whiskies that um, gave her a, a tasting platter and I remember saying to her, um, do women play a big role in whiskey making? And she wasn't 100% sure. And I said, but they did in brewing, didn't they? I don't know how I knew that. You know how you pluck stuff out of your head from somewhere and you don't know how you knew it? 
And she said, yep. actually, yeah, they did. Women, women were huge with brewing. And after that, I didn't hear another thing she said. So I always put it down to Sarah because we were there because of Sarah and uh, because I used to go there to buy Sarah um, a particular whiskey to take her with her medication, another story, and that's why I went to Lark Bar. And, um, yeah, so this whole story came into my head and Stephen um, was my research assistant on it and introduced me to all these wonderful brewers and he was looking for a business himself. He'd been in psychiatry for 25 years and was a little bit burnt out and he was looking for a business and he really wanted to go into hospitality because he loves people. But every time he sort of mentioned an aspect of a business, his face would fall. But then he'd say, but I could brew. I could home brew. I, I, I've always brewed. And I said to him one day, why are you even bothering with the other aspect? Why don't you just be a brewer? And he looked at me and he said, would you be okay with that? And I said, hell yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, yeah, and um, five and a half years later, he's doing really well. We have Captain Bly's Ale and Cider and now a distillery. Our son has joined us in Hobart and he's our distiller. So How fantastic. Oh, no. So we, we now make whiskey, gin and rum as well as beer. Yeah. It does feel like it was all meant to be. Yeah, well, we all say it's because of the Sarah and the Brewer's Tale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turning to your wider career, we've mentioned your very full life as a social commentator and a part-time academic. I gather you're a semi-retired academic now, but um, you, you've – copped a lot of abuse for being uh, above the parapet, so to speak. <laughs> You've been called things like the six-foot-two transvestite Sheila. Um, Sheila, for people who don't know, is an Australian term for female. A witch and a loopy lefty. And, and I just wonder, how how is it? How do you cope with this kind of, um, you know, insult? Yeah, look, and, and that's just the polite stuff. Honestly, I've had death threats. I've had rape threats. Oh. I've had all sorts of terrible things and still do. Um, yeah, I was actually a full-time academic for over 20 years, yeah, and I, I'm, I now just do a – I'm basically a consultant. I still write some academic articles, but, yeah, I have a weekly column and um, I – look, it, I get really tired of people saying it comes with the territory, but to a degree it does. And, again, you get told don't take it personally, but everything in a way is personal. But – it's just the echo chamber that social media has become because a lot of these people will either comment anonymously online under one of your articles or the more angry will write to you <laughs> and uh, make sure that you get the abuse in your in-tray in your email. And I keep them all. Um, I'm not sure why. I, I have blocked the, the more angry. I've reported a couple of people. But, yeah, I think it's particularly being a woman and daring to have an opinion and a public voice, or you're given a platform for your opinion, I should say, everybody has an opinion. But, um, and that's a privilege, and I, I like to think it's a privilege that I really respect, and I try and make sure my opinion is always informed. I do my research, but there's a lot of people don't like that. And I guess on the one hand, we live in a world where people can express that displeasure, and providing it's done respectively, respectfully and civilly, I, I'm all for it. But unfortunately, there are those that don't know how to do that or just don't think you deserve it and they become incredibly abusive and threatening and, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Do you think that Australia is particularly hard on women in public life? I, I am thinking about your former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, who, who I personally thought got a pretty rough deal. Yeah, I do. I think you're absolutely right, Jenny. She did get a rough deal. And I don't understand why there are those people still in denial about that when the evidence was all everywhere, everywhere it was. 
And I really admire, um, you know, female politicians and any woman who puts themselves right out there. I, I've withdrawn a lot from television commentary and even radio commentary because of threats I've received and also comments on your appearance. I get really tired of that too. I think um, comment on my work, don't comment on the way I look. And um, I, I, women get that. We don't ask for that. We don't invite that. And yet there's like a standard that we have to meet or if, if you below it or even if you exceed it, then you are judged. But I also have learned I'd rather people underestimate, underestimate me than overestimate me um, because at least then I don't have anything to live up to and then they can sort of reassess me when they get to know me. I don't know. It's, it's such a strange thing, Jenny. And for all that I love um, what, you know, the internet has done for us and, you know, um, that equality is really improving gender equality and gender respect. And I think the younger generation coming up are, are I'm so proud of them and I'm so proud of what so many of them are doing and I think they're going to get it right. But um, I think for my generation and the one above me, I think, you know, we could learn from them and I think it's really sad that instead of respecting and appreciating um, equality and, and what somebody else might offer, you feel threatened and challenged and you lash out. Mm, yeah, yeah. You've done a tremendous amount outside of your fiction writing. Just to mention a couple of things, you had a writer in residency um, stay in China. I think you were the first Australian to be accepted into that program. And you, you worked as a consultant on the Brains Trust <laughs> for the Einstein Factor on TV for a few years. I just wondered if you were going to pick one highlight out of your nonfiction career, could you do that and what would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, yes, there's two. I think teaching. Um, I really loved teaching. Um, it, it was such a, again, I keep using the word privilege, but I don't take anything for granted and it was a real privilege to be given that role and um, or earn that role rather, you're not given it, you earn it, um, to teach young minds and older minds too in, in the university environment and I still to this day miss it and um, I loved that. I didn't like the politics of university but I loved the teaching and I think writing my column every week, I, I really, really enjoy that. It's challenging um, you have a deadline, you have to write fast, you have to write topically and it, it keeps your brain tuned and it keeps your instincts honed and it's great for my fiction writing as well. And, and again, it's, it's, I feel humbled that I have that. I truly do. It's interesting that you say it's great for your fiction writing. How does it help your fiction? Uh, because you don't use extraneous words. Um, I, my books... Um, some people might say they might need more of an edit, but my editors always say that um, they're, they're good to edit. And I think that's my my training um, writing for a newspaper where you've got a word limit and you have to write to that word limit. And if you don't, somebody will cull it and they might not, um, it can change the whole meaning of, of what you've written. So you're very careful to write to the word limit. I've been doing that for 18 years now and um, had great editors that I've worked with that have taught me a lot. And the editors that work on my fiction books continue to teach me heaps too. So I don't write the perfect book by any means. I, the team of editors that work with me are fantastic. But, yeah, it teaches you, I, I don't know, the power of words, how to, how to put a good sentence together. It's, um, yeah, you're always learning. It's great. I guess that in, in a newspaper you do have to try and make sure that you capture attention immediately, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a thing I used to do, and, and I think because I, I write fiction as well, called Burying the Lead, where you don't grab 
the the readers immediately yeah. and you have it mm-hmm. a few sentences down and I quickly mm-hmm. learned to, no, move that to the top, move that to the top. And I think the, the same should apply with fiction. If you don't grab a reader within a page, you're probably lost, you know, you, you run the risk of losing them. Yeah. But interestingly, uh, somebody was just commenting to me the other day that, you know, uh, 20 years ago we had those books like the James Michener books where they included a huge amount of extraneous information, which I used to love, botany, geology, etc. And then that went out of fashion and those sorts of books, they, they felt as if it was, it was loaded with too much information. But somebody was mentioning to me the other day that a lot of the best-selling historical authors are getting back into providing a lot of rich detail. And I think your books have got a lot of rich detail without being overloaded with it. Would you agree with that? And and do you find it hard to kind of keep that right balance? Oh, yeah. Well, the, gosh, you ask good questions. Yeah. I, it's like the slow movement with cooking and that, isn't it? It's almost like, yeah, people are returning to wanting that. You're right, you know, I love the history books, the history fiction that gives me information and, and, and slowly unfurls. Again, they have to grab me with the story within a couple of pages, but I don't read historical fiction because I don't want information. I actually do want to learn about the period. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a change afoot. And like Ken Follett, look at Ken Follett's books. They're enormous. And um, yes laden with information and C.J. Sansom, he's one of my favourite historical fiction writers and I love Philippa Gregory's works too and Geraldine Brooks, unfortunately she's no relative, but she writes beautiful historical fiction that's laden with information but never, ever does it detract from the story. And I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a swing back towards that. And I think if you don't like it, you wouldn't choose the genre, would you? Yeah. That's probably right, yes. So historical readers are looking for something other than just plotted characters. I think that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think that's why I really love crime too because sometimes I I do want that. I just want plot and character because, Mm. you know, the crime is significant and important but it's also very much a part of the plot, yeah, and and I, I really enjoy a great crime book. If there was one thing in your writing career that you've done more than any other, that is the secret of success, of your success, what would it be? Oh, all right. Can I say two things again? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, not giving up, um, mm-hmm. you know, and as in once you start a project, finish it. And I think that was advice I got doing my PhD because I was told to once you get accepted into a PhD, you've already proven you can do it, but it's a long haul and it's about stickability and belief in yourself. And, you know, maintaining a standard, of course, and respecting your readers and all that. And I think writing a novel is exactly the same. Fiction writing is the same. It's um, it's about sticking with it, respecting your readers, respecting the genre, the market, everything, and just following through. And then, of course, edit, 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 cut, 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 and don't be afraid of that. Um, and I think the other thing that, that really helps is having a great support network around you, your family, your friends, people who understand what you do. And, and respect that as well. With your editing, do you do more than one draft? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, gosh, you know, every morning um, w- when I'm in the writing process is I read over what I, where I fit, you know, depending how long the book's getting now, but definitely the, the chapter the day before it. So I edit that again and that gets me back into the flow, and then I go on. So, And sometimes I go right back, and I know when I've got, well, I don't actually get writer's block. I realise writer's block just means I'm going in the wrong direction, and I just need to delete what I've just written and start that part again, or I get up and go for a walk. I just need a break from my desk. So, um, And then I come back and I'm fresh, and it's fine. But um, 
yeah, I um sorry, I've forgotten the question now. I've got so- no that that redrafting thing. And I think talking about writer's block, um, the journalism thing helps that. You you can't have writer's block when you're a journalist and. No. Can you? No, no, no. <laughs> and in fact, if you do, because you're only writing like it's only eight hundred words for each week that I have to produce my column, um, yeah, I just ditch it and start again, and, and that's not a problem. So I'm not afraid of deleting. And I think lots of people think their words are so precious, and they are to you. And um, that that's what editing teaches you: have have the courage to delete. Having said that, I have a delete file, so a lot of my stuff goes into a file just in case I need to pull it back out later because I actually did need that bit. But um, I've been known to, well, I cut 30,000 words out of The Chocolate Maker's Wife, for example. So um, that, that that had a, a really big edit and that was before my editors got to it. So Gosh, yeah, because it was 500 pages anyway, wasn't it? Yes, so it was, yes, yeah. What would that be? Around about 120,000 words, was it? Or What, that I deleted? Oh, yeah. No, 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 that it ended up being. Is it 140? Oh, I, I'd say it's even more than that. I'd say yeah. probably around 160, 70. Yeah. 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 It, it, yeah. My next book's not quite that long. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a lot. But no, I do. I do loads of drafts, probably close to 10 drafts. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's not counting all the little bits that you redo and redo and redo. Yeah. Look, turning to Karen as reader, um, this is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it is predicated a little bit around the idea of binge reading becoming something a bit like binge watching. Do you binge read and and what do you like to read generally? Oh, yes, I binge read all the time. I love, 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 as I said, crime. Crime's my go-to um, fiction and I love historical fiction and I love fantasy. They're probably my favourite genres. And so, like, I, I binge read all Elizabeth George's. Um, I, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think. Uh I'm looking at my shelves as I'm talking to you. But, um, like, I love, we have such great authors in Australia too. And if I find a good author, I'll go and read all their books. But actually, Ellie Griffiths, I've just, um, I binge read all hers until I got to where she, I'm now waiting for her next book and her next book. She's a lovely, lovely um, mystery writer, English mystery writer. Uh, Australian writer Kate Forsyth, I adore her book. She's got a new one coming out called The Blue Rose, which I can't wait for. Uh, Kim Wilkins, another great Australian fantasy writer. And then, a colleague of mine, Trent Dalton, just wrote the most beautiful book called Boy Swallows Universe, and I can't wait for his next one because that was just glorious. But CJ Sansom and, um, yeah, I and Philippa Gregory, you know, I just I binge read all the time. Yes, that's fantastic. I haven't heard of Trent Dalton, so I look out for him. Oh, yeah, Boy Swallows Universe. It's won every award and then some over here. It's I think it's sold into 34 countries. It's amazing, and uh, it... It's a look. It's gorgeous. I I've not read anything quite like it, and I couldn't put it down. And I've bought it and recommended it and given it to so many people, and they've all loved it. We're coming to a draw and close of our time together. So just looking back over your writing life, your fiction life, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all again, would you take exactly the same steps and do it the same way? Oh wow. I, I don't think I can give any answer, but yes, because if I hadn't, I wouldn't be where I am now. Does that make yes, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd be scared of a misstep in case I I didn't end up here. And you know, I'm 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 one of those really fortunate people that can write for a living, and um, I love what I do, and I love you know, it is like stepping into Doctor Who's TARDIS and being taken on an adventure in a different time and place and meeting all these amazing characters. You know, I work from home. I'm alone a lot of the day with my dogs, and um, but I never feel alone. 
because I'm always surrounded by the people, you know, the ghosts of Christmas past, if you like, and um, it, it's it's pretty magical. You've really had at least two careers, probably three, but um, a lot of writers sometimes say they, they wish they'd given up the day job earlier or they wish they'd started earlier, but in your case, you've obviously had a very fulfilling life in, in all areas. Yeah, I have, and, and a lot of my careers overlapped, and I was always eternally grateful that I had the writing while I was an academic. I was writing books in my column while I was an academic, so when the cancer meant I could no longer uh, remain in my job as an academic, I became unreliable because of my health. Um, I was so fortunate to have the writing to fall back on, and um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I am lucky. So tell us about your your next projects. You've mentioned this new book set in Scotland. Has that got a title? Do you know what, Jenny? It's the only book that hasn't got a title. I gave it one. I gave it one, I'll tell you, called The Sea Witch of Caledonia. But my publishers quite rightly said it sounds too fantasy. And I think because my backlist is fantasy, you know, some of them are fantasy, mm. they were worried it would confuse readers. So at the moment it's untitled, but it's set in 1704 to 1706 in Scotland in a little village called Pittenweem on the East Coast. And, uh, yeah, so we're, we've got a couple of titles up our sleeve, but I don't know that we've settled on one yet. So that's pretty exciting to see what, because that will be a team effort to decide. And then, again, the book that I'm about to start writing is based on a character from The Brewer's Tale, Alison, who runs, a, in The Brewer's Tale, she runs a brothel in Southwark in medieval times. But she's also, she was based on Geoffrey Chaucer's The Wife of Bath. So what I'm doing is I'm doing her story from 11 years of age to how she ends up um, becoming a brothel owner in Southwark. So, yeah, and, and um, they don't like the title I gave that. Um, so we'll see what that comes up with. At the moment, I'm, I'm calling it the mostly true story of the wife of Bath. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Scottish one will be out next year yes. and, and the second part of the Brewer's Tale I imagine it's a standalone, but yeah. Brewer's Tale yeah, it's Part like 2. Like a, it's like a prequel, if anything. Yeah, but okay. I don't know yeah. if I'll have um, the lead girl from the Brewer's Tale in it or not yet. I I don't know. This is one where I sort of know the ending, but I could go a bit further into an epilogue, you know, <laughs> so I'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that'll be out in 2021 probably. Yes, it will be. later. I think later in that year, yeah. They're, they're allowing me a little bit more time on this one, so, yeah. Great. Do you like interacting with your readers? And if so, where can they find you online? Oh, I love interacting with the readers because unlike my column readers, they're really lovely. <laughs> no, no, no. no I, I have lovely column readers too. And in fact, that's what I should say. I have people write to me thanking me and saying really lovely things too. Unfortunately, you tend to remember the more negative things. But the readers of my books, they, people don't tend to write to you and say, I hated your book, which is really nice. They tend to want to interact with you and ask you questions and they can get me through my website. Um, through Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and somebody put me on Instagram, I think my daughter, which I'm still learning to use, but I, I am a presence online and I welcome them talking to me. I'd love it. I love it. I'd imagine that your books also would lend themselves to book club um, Skype sessions. Do you, have you ever been asked to do one of those? No, but I would. That's a good idea, I think. Yeah, I think it's a great <laughs> idea, Jenny. Yeah. You, should, you should copyright that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Should gather a group of girlfriends together. We'll have to see about that, yeah. Yeah, what a great idea, yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's been wonderful, Karen, to be able to talk. It really has. And I, I just wish you all the very best for that off in a couple of weeks and, and on all power to your arm. Oh, look, thank you so, so much, Jenny. It's been an absolute pleasure too. And can I just tell you, um, 
we were going to start a movement, my husband and I down here, and we wanted to um, cede Tasmania to become the westernmost state of New Zealand, if you'll have us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or may, maybe just us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I, the people who do my um, formatting for my books are, Tas, are Tasmania-based. So, yeah, I've got a, a little bit of a... I, I'm giving some money to that Tasmania, only a very small amount, but it's... It's nice to know they're there. Yeah. It's nice to know you, you, you have a hook in here too. That's lovely. Thank you so, so much, Jenny. It's been great. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.